everyone again. Uh, we're glad you're here, whether you're here or online. Uh, and uh, we're starting a new sermon series today called True Justice in an Unjust World. And uh, I want to start by sharing some song lyrics. A lot of you True Life know uh, David Nolan, and uh, he serves in some different ways here. And, uh, but one of the ways maybe he, you don't know about that he serves kind of behind the scenes, is David's like the quote meister. It just occasionally out of the blue, he'll text me uh, a, a quote. Uh, sometimes it's him, a lot, usually uh, just something he's come across that, uh, that he's found and uh, I guess thinks is, is relevant. But, you know, last Sunday morning, uh, I, I wasn't preaching. Uh, Justin Self preached and uh, did a, a great job. And really, when, you know, we didn't talk about this, but what he shared is a great lead-in to what we're going to be talking about uh, in this series. But uh, sometime last Sunday morning, I came to the second service, sometime before that, uh, David sent me some song lyrics. And so we're going to go back a little bit. Some of you, you won't know what I'm talking about. Some of you, this will be back uh, in, in your heyday, uh, like it was for me when I was a teenager. But back in the 80s, do you, re- do you remember the band Genesis? Okay. All right. Uh, so we have people with good taste in music around here. That's a good thing. Uh, if, if, if you don't, if you don't know, uh, if you don't know the name Genesis, if you remember Phil Collins, uh, Phil Collins was the lead singer uh, for Genesis. But uh, in 1986, they released a song called "Land of Confusion." And uh, it it seems appropriate for today, and and some of the lyrics say this. I must have dreamed a thousand dreams, been haunted by a million screams, but I can hear the marching feet, they're moving into the street. Now, did you read the news today? They say the danger's gone away, but I can see the fire's still alight, they're burning into the night. There's too many men, too many people making too many problems, and not much love to go around, can't you see this is a land of confusion? This is the world we live in, and these are the hands we're given. Use them and let's start trying to make it a place worth living in. Oh, Superman, where are you now when everything's gone wrong somehow? The men of steel, the men of power are losing control by the hour. This is the time, this is the place. So we look for the future, but there's not much love to go around. Tell me why this is a land of confusion. This is the world we live in, and these are the hands we're given. Use them and let's start trying to make it a place worth living in. And as the church, you know, we're called to build, to advance the kingdom of God, to be a part of making the world a place worth living in. And, you know, as we think of, I mean, it's a confusing time. I mean, it's confusing to know how to deal with coronavirus, right? There's so much conflicting information, it can kind of almost feel paralyzing uh, sometimes. Uh, There's confusion politically, there's confusion racially. We're even confused about gender now and how you define that. Uh, I mean, if, if you Google how many genders there are, you'll come up with different lists ranging from about 58 to 64 uh, different genders. It's a land of confusion. But I think part of what we're confused about that's foundational and, and, and necessary 
for us to actually function in a healthy way as a society is the idea of justice. And, and what is true justice? Now, um, you know, I said in talking about the series, I mean, it's, it's going to be somewhat about racial justice, but it's going to be week three before we really get there, and that's what it's fully about. The first couple of weeks, particularly today, we're going to lay in kind of, kind of a foundation, lay some groundwork that we build off of. And so today, what we're going to talk about is justice and the nature of God. And you might be thinking, what does the nature of God have to do with justice? What does the nature of God have to do with racial justice? What does the na nature of God have to do uh, with justice in the, in the United States of America? America right now? What does it have to do with what's going on in our society? And I would say that it has everything to do with it. And I hope that by the time we're finished today, that you understand that because I believe with all of my heart that apart from God, there cannot actually be justice. And if we understand God's nature, and if we understand justice, it's one of the strongest reasons to actually believe in God, and then it begins to define what true justice is, and it begins to define how things are actually supposed to function in a society. Let me share another quote with you. This isn't a rock band this time. Uh, th this is one of my, uh, from one of my favorite preachers, uh, Tony Evans. Uh, and he, he puts it this way. He says, everything physical and visible is preceded by that which is invisible and spiritual. So if we want to address the physical and visible, we must first identify the cause which is invisible and spiritual. Therefore, if all we see is what we see, then we're not seeing all there is to be seen. Does that make sense? If we're only seeing what's going on in the physical material realm, we're actually missing the main part of everything that underlies everything else and makes things really what they actually are. That's what he's saying. And so if we're going to understand justice and we're going to understand the outward manifestation of it, understand what's going on in society, it starts by understanding where it comes from in the invisible spiritual realm. Now, before we dig into scripture, and today's message is going to be different uh, than normal for me because you know, normally I do expository preaching where we're walking through passages of scripture. Uh, this is actually going to be a topical message. And, and so we're going to look at just the, the kind of an overview of justice in the Bible as it relates to the nature of God. But uh, before we do that, let me just give us kind of a working definition of what we're talking about with justice. And so I think a basic definition would be that justice is righteousness, it's action which is in, a, in harmony with moral and ethical norms, and so to do the just thing would be to do the right thing, to, to, to do the moral thing. And, and often when we talk about justice, it's, it relates to other people, so it could be treating other people in a right way, in a fair way, in an equitable way, in a, in a moral way, and, and this applies individually, 
And it, and it certainly also applies legally in, in our justice system with judges and governments and, and those kind of things. So it's both individual and it's systemic. And actually, when you read the Bible, you see it there as well. When you read Leviticus, when you read Deuteronomy, when you read the law of God, you see some commands directed to individuals and some command directed to their government. It's no coincidence or accident that our uh, model of government comes from, in its roots, its foundation from Scripture. So when we talk about justice, that's what we're talking about, righteousness, uh, acting in accord with moral and ethical norms. So what does justice have to do with the nature of God? Where does it come from as far as, you know, in the invisible spiritual realm that's underlying everything? Well, this is the first statement that, that I want to make from Scripture today, and that is there is justice because God is inherently just. There is justice because God is inherently just in his nature. Now, there's tons of Bible verses that we could look at about this. I just want to point out three just to kind of give us a sampling. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. In Psalms 89, 14 and 15, Scripture says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Sorry, just verse 14. But notice what it says. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And then in Revelation uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 3, it says, they, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Why? For your judgments have been manifested. So once again, the, the justness of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God is manifested in part by the judgment of God. We tend to focus on the grace of God, which God is loving and merciful and kind and gracious and patient and long-suffering, but a, a full-orbed, complete, accurate view of God biblically would also say that God is just and righteous and holy, and as we're going to see a little bit later on, that he's a God of wrath who righteously punishes sin. So, if you believe the Bible... God is just. That's his nature. Now, what if, you know, you don't believe the Bible? What if you're not sure about all this? Well, I want to give you a couple things to think about here. But um, once again, to kind of define this from the Revel Compact Bible Dictionary, it says God is just both in the sense that he defines the moral and ethical norms of the universe and in that he acts in harmony with the standards he has revealed. Now, now, do you hear that? God is just in that he defines the moral and ethical norms of the universe. In other words, how do we know what's just? How do we know what's right? It relates back to the nature of God and then what he's revealed in his word. 
Now, you might want to push back on that, say, well, I don't believe in God, or I don't see what God has to do with justice or right and wrong or, or those kind of things. Well, uh, let me give you a couple things to think about. Let me share a couple quotes with you. The first one is from C.S. Lewis. He wrote, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. The moment you say one lot of morals is better than another, you are in fact measuring them by an ultimate standard. Does that make sense? Now, let me kind of add to that with a quote from uh, Ravi Zacharias, and he's answering a question here, and uh, he's, I, I think, uh, kind of responding to someone, you know, one of the most common objections to Christianity is how can you believe in God, how can you believe in a good and loving God when there's so much evil in the world? And notice his response. He says, when you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. Is that true? When you start using words like good and evil, you can't really use one without the other and be logically consistent. Is this true? If there's evil, there's good. If there's good, uh, there's evil. If there's right, there's wrong. If there's truth, there's lies. You, you, that's just logical. He says, when you assume there's good, you assume that there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. Is this not also true? Um, I, mean, I mean, think about it. If you uh, someday, for some reason, for something I'm sure that you didn't do, you had to appear in Judge Roach's courtroom, uh, do you want there to be an absolute standard of law by which for him to differentiate between good and evil, right and wrong, or do you just want it to be based on his guess, his mood, or how much he likes you on a given day? Do you want a standard? There has to be a standard. Uh, there has to be a moral law to be good and evil. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, but if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver, but that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What is your question? To me, one of the strongest reasons to actually believe in God is the fact that we do believe in good and evil. And once you start saying there's good and evil, I think what he just said is the logical outcome, logical inference, logical flow of all that. Basically, God is the ultimate plumb line when it comes to morality. So there is justice because it's inherent within the nature of God. But let me give you a second biblical statement, and that is that we desire justice because we are made in the image of God. We desire justice because we are made in the image of God. Notice what Scripture says in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And this would be the Trinity implied here, God singular, saying let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, <clears throat> over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man 
man, mankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. We are a reflection of God. We're in the likeness of God. And that's why we think and feel and choose and will and we have a spirit and we're created to know God. And so if God is a just God and then we are made in the image of God, that means inherently within us there is a desire for justice. Now, now think about it. Every time in your life that you said, that's right, that's the way it ought to be, you've declared something is just and you have affirmed that you're made in the image of God, that you have a soul and you've really affirmed what scripture said. Every time in your life you said, that's not right, it shouldn't be that way. You've declared something to be unjust and you've declared that there is a moral law and you've declared that you have a soul and once again, the implication back, I mean, if you put it together and look at what corresponds with reality, which is what we, how we know something's true or not, you are pointing back to the existence of a creator God who has made you in his image. I mean, think about it. I mean, just to kind of think about it, you know, in terms of racial justice and, you know, I mean, I'm obviously very white, grew up uh, middle class, all these kind of things. But, I, you know, I think back when I was a kid, one of the best things my parents ever did is uh, have me watch Roots. And I, and I remember as a kid just thinking, that's not right. I remember thinking, how can people, how can people treat other people that way? Why did I think that way? Because I have a soul, because I'm made in the image of God, because I believe that was unjust. Think about in high school, reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Did you read that? If you homeschool, you ought to make your teenagers read To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, Atticus Finch defends Tom Robinson, makes it clear he was a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman, and it makes it clear impossible for it to happen. The jury still convicts him. And I remember reading that, and there's kind of an anger. You know, it's just, it's fiction, it's literature, but an anger kind of, well, that's not right. Why? Because we want justice. Because we're made in the image of God. I remember once again as a high schooler in Mark Workman's English class at Morristown West reading Elie Wiesel's book, Night, about his experiences in Nazi concentration camps uh, as, as a teenager and, and the horrors and the, the barbarism that he witnessed and experienced and, and thinking, how can other people treat people that way and thinking we must be evil. We must be sinners. It must be within us. And once again, this anger welling up. Why? Because God is just and we're made in his image. And so we have this craving on the inside of us for justice. It's in us. And you see, because we think these kind of thoughts it points to the reality of us having an immaterial soul. And if we have an immaterial soul, it points to the reality of being created by a spiritual God because material can't create immaterial. 
Once again, it's one of the greatest evidences there is for the existence of God. So we desire justice because we're made in the image of God. But that then, I think, leads us to the question then of, you know, when, when within us, if we have this desire, I mean, if we get worked up when we see a bad call at a ball game, or if you're watching a TV program and somebody mistreats somebody else and it's not even real and you get worked up about that, if this is so inherent within us, if we so easily say that's not right, why is there so much injustice in the world? And once again, this becomes a worldview issue a naturalistic worldview would say that we're inherently good or at least morally neutral, corrupted by the bad environment around us. Society's messed us up. So if we fix uh, society, then individuals will be okay. But a biblical worldview says that we, are, we act unjustly because we are sinners. And we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is who we are. We've been corrupted by uh, the fall. And so because of who we are on the inside, that works its way out to uh, the outside. And we mistreat other people. We treat other people unjustly. We build societal structures and systems that are unjust because these societal structures and systems are made up by and uh, made up of and created by and run by unjust sinners. Now, folks, this is a major real-life issue because understand, we have to correctly diagnose the problem to correctly prescribe a solution. Amen. I mean, if you go to the doctor and she says you have cancer and starts treating you for cancer and you really have heart disease, you're in a boatload of trouble. And so if we as a society have, have diagnosed the problem incorrectly and so we've come up with the long, wrong solution, we're going to have some major issues. And so if we've said the problem is society and therefore the issue is fixing society and it's all external, you know, this is kind of where the idea of socialism and all these kind of things flows from. If, if that's the correct worldview, then that's where we should go. But if the correct worldview is, and, and once again, I'm not saying we don't need societal change. We're going to talk about systemic issues as we get into this in a few weeks. We'll talk about government uh, kind of things. But what I'm saying is, is if the ultimate problem is a problem of the heart, then the solution must be a heart solution. It has to start on the inside. We need social change, but it has to flow out of spiritual change. And I think G.K. Chesterton was right when he said something like uh, that the only um, biblical doctrine that's been verified by centuries uh, of, of human history is the doctrine of original sin. I mean, the Bible says Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. That's God's spiritual diagnosis of us, that we are unjust. 
I mean, think about Genesis 3. Sin comes into the world. There's the fall. What happens out of that? Well, you have Adam and Eve's relationship being broken after the relationship with God was broken. And then what happens in the next chapter? There's a murder. Because if we're fundamentally sinful on the inside, it can't help but flow into the way that we treat other people. Listen, how can we deny sin and evil? I mean, just I've gone through this before, but I mean, just think about it. Think about history. Think about the news. Look in the mirror. I mean, when I look in the mirror, that's all the proof I need of the doctrine of original sin. I mean, I know what's right. I try to do what's right. But I, I, so often, I blow that. I mess that up. I mean, think about the people around us that we love the most. I mean, my wife's the most wonderful person in the world. She's also sometimes the most exasperating person in the world. <laughs> in my mind, anyway, right? Because every marriage is a union of two sinners. Don't look at me with those judgmental looks. You think the exact same thing. Come on now. Uh, bunch of sinners, hypocrites, acting like that. Um, that's not right. Um, I, I mean, think about socialism. You know, this social approach to solving things because, you know, we can build a utopia. We can have a classless society and make everything right. Where's that ended up? Hundreds of millions of deaths as a sin nature comes out and uh, power corrupts and people try to use it for their own gain. I mean, just think about your two-year-old. I mean, I mean, hang out with a two-year-old for a while and argue with the doctrine of originals. You didn't teach them to do that, right? You didn't teach them to talk back. You didn't teach them to bite, kick, scream, yell, whole list of things. It's, it's in them, right? <laughs> but look how cute they are, right? <laughs> They're cute little sinners. That, that, that's, that's what they are. Um, it's in us. It's in us. We act unjustly because we're sinners, and so that leads then to the fourth statement that I want to make. And that is that God is a wrathful God who executes right, righteous judgment upon the unjust because there can't be true justice without righteous judgment. We, that, that's, I hope, and whether you, whatever you think about God, whatever you think about the Bible, I hope that's an obviously true statement. Right? I mean, if you were falsely accused of a crime and got convicted of it, you wouldn't think there was justice in that. But look at what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 5, and you know, in the midst of the, some of the judgments that are depicted there. Scripture says, and I heard the angel of the waters saying, you're righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, for you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Let's go back to verse six for, for just a second. Um, notice it says, 
It's talking about you know, the, the persecution, the martyrdom, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. In other words, he's saying they took life, they lost their life. That's justice. That's what he's saying. Think about Romans uh, chapter 1 and what the Bible says there. It, it, starting in verse 18, it, it says, the, For the wrath of God, and God's wrath is his settled anger and righteous judgment, punishment expressed against. Notice what it says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And suppress means to try to push down. Because what, may mean, what, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, God is saying that he has revealed himself through creation, and that witness leaves everyone without an excuse. And so his wrath is expressed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. In John 3, 36, John wrote, he said, for if we believe in the Son of God, that we have life. But he who does not believe in the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the Bible basically it tells us that we're either in Christ or we're separated from Christ, that we have the gift of eternal life or we stand under the wrath of God. But really what Romans 1 was saying is that we all, all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And so if we've ever done anything unrighteous or ungodly that we stand under, we stand deserving the wrath of God. Now, the, the, the wrath of God, the, the judgment of God is a controversial subject to talk about. I, I think this is where one of these deals where God can't win, so to speak. Because some people are like, God, how could you, uh, how can you judge everybody? You know, how can you judge people? How can you send people to hell? And then at the same time, people are like, uh, other people are like, God, how long are you going to let all this mess go on? There has to be righteous judgment, though, in order for there to be justice. And, and, and I really believe there has to be a standard and there has to be someone above and beyond us who knows everything, who could actually truly administer justice because any human being, a judge, a, a jury, even with the right heart and the right motive, trying to do the right thing is fallible and limited in knowledge. I mean, if you remember the O.J. Simpson trial, some of you weren't born then. It was, I think, in 1995, about 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, what was so amazing about that is right after the verdict, there were protests. <laughs> and, and there was all these things going on. Some people were protesting the verdict. Some people were celebrating the verdict. And they've done polls since then, and, and, and the majority of people think that the jury got it wrong. We're fallible. Um, 
I don't know if you saw this, it was national news about four or five years ago. There was, uh, I think it was a Stanford uh, student on the swim team, you know, had it all going for him. His name was Brock Turner, who uh, was convicted of sexually assaulting an unconscious young woman. And he got six months in, in jail and served three months. Is that just? On the other hand, there's a judge in Alabama by the name of Lee, Les Hayes. And it was found out he did stuff like this hundreds of times. Here's one example. He, he, he sentenced a single mother to 496 days behind bars for failing to pay traffic tickets. The sentence was so stiff, it exceeded the jail time Alabama allows for negligent homicide. Marquita Johnson, who was locked up in April 2012, says the impact of her time in jail endures today. Johnson's three children were cast into foster care while she was incarcerated. One daughter was molested, state records show. Another was physically abused. Judge Hayes took away my life and didn't care how my children suffered. My girls will never be the same. Fellow inmates found her sentence hard to believe. They had a nickname for me, the woman with all the days. That's what they called me, the woman with all the days. There were people who committed real crimes who got out before me. We want justice. We want justice for people now. We should want justice for people now. But if we want justice for people now, doesn't there have to be ultimate justice when it's all said and done? That's why the psalmist cried out, how long, O Lord? Isn't that the cry of our heart? God, when are you gonna set this right? But for God to set it right, he has to be a just judge who actually executes righteous judgment. And so what we need to wrestle with is number one, do we believe there's a God? Number two, do we believe that he's a just God who actually executes judgment? But then number three, are we worthy of that judgment? Because sometimes where we are is like, okay, God, yeah, you need to judge the really bad people. You need to deal with them and take care of them, but I'm not so bad, so I'm okay. But what we have to understand is if the Bible's true, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, and all of us are unrighteous and ungodly. We've all sinned. We've all done things that are wrong. That's the bad news. But here's the good news, and that is that God is also a gracious God who justly justifies the unjust through faith in Jesus. See, here, here's something that, that, that we gotta understand. Uh, you know, as this series goes along, I mean, a, a lot of what it's gonna be is working out the practical implications as it relates to things going on in our society today. But here at the beginning, I want us to see that the concept of justice actually underlies the very gospel itself. It's at the very heart of Christianity. You take away uh, the, the concept of, of justice and God being a just judge, there is actually no point to Jesus dying on the cross. And so I, I want us to close by looking at one other passage of Scripture this morning, and that's in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 19, 
and just spend a few minutes walking through these verses as we close today. You know, we're going to look at, you know, God justifies us ultimately in order for us to live just lives. And that's what we're going to talk about next week is justice and the people of God. We're going to be in Amos chapter 5. You may want to read the book of Amos this week to prepare. Uh, but but I, I want us to close here in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And so, you know, understand God's law is righteous and holy because it's an expression of who he is. And the, without, you know, a standard to go by, you can't be justly judged. Without a right standard to go by, you can't be justly judged. And so that's why the issue of whether or not the Bible is actually true or not is so important. Do we really know who God is through Scripture? Do we really know God's will and ways and law and expectations through Scripture? He says, he said, Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, that we don't have any excuse and all the world may become guilty before God. So I want you to understand that the law of God pronounces every person in this room, every person who's listening to me online, really ultimately every person in the world as guilty before God, as sinful, guilty of breaking the law of God. And then it says, therefore, verse 20, as a result, because by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And the word justified in this passage is of crucial importance. It's actually really the heart of the gospel. To justify means to declare righteous. It's a legal term. It means to, in one sense, to be acquitted, but beyond that, to, that God does not hold our sins against us anymore, that in his sight, we now have the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that, that we're forgiven. We are permanently declared to be right with him. But he says, by the deeds of the law, no one will be declared righteous, why? Because the law is the knowledge of sin. So, so in other words, um, the law was not given to show us we're right. It's given to show us we're wrong. It's given to show us our need for a Savior. It's given to show us that we all fall short. It says, but now the righteousness of God, God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on, on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God is his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. It's saying that we all fall short of that standard. Now, we may fall short to different degrees, but that's not the issue. So uh, let, let me just, let me give you an illustration of this, okay? L let, let's just say, I'm gonna use Heather and Will Roach, if, if, if that's all right. So, so, so let's just say that um, Heather and Will and I aren't, um, whatever age we actually are. And uh, let, let's just say we're high school seniors and you know, we're, we're looking to go to college. And so we got to take the ACT. Let's say we're friends. We all want to go to the same school. And it's a 
prestigious, uh, top flight academic school where you have to make a 34 on the ACT, no exceptions, 34 on the ACT to get in. And that, which is 34 is an awesome score because the highest you can make is, is 36. Uh, I mean, you, you know, a lot of places you get close to a 30 and you're looking at an academic scholarship. I mean, you're, you're really, really smart if you're getting anywhere close to a 34. So, but you got to make a 34, no exceptions. So we uh, go take uh, the, 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 the test and, you know, a little while, a few weeks later, we get our scores back and we open them up together and Heather sees that she made a 33 because she's really smart. And, and, and then uh, Will finds out that, uh, that he made a 26, which is still a, a, a really good score. And then I get mine and uh, made a 19. And um, so, you know, we're kind of comparing, we're talking about it, and Heather's like, yeah, I knew I was smarter than those two idiots. Um, <laughs> known it all along. And, uh, you know, and, and Will's like, I, I, everybody thinks Jimmy's smart, but I knew I'm smarter than him, and I'm way ahead of him, and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, Heather's feeling good about herself, and, you know, she's comparing her to, to us, and she's like yeah, way ahead of us, uh, particularly me. But then the next day, we all get another piece of mail. And it's from the college that we're trying to get into. And it's a rejection letter for all three of us because all three of us fell short of their standard. Now, she only fell a little bit short. I fell way short. Will was in the middle. I mean, and she almost doubled my score. I mean, she's like way ahead of me. But at the end of the day, it didn't really even matter because we fell short. And that's what God's law says to all of us spiritually. It doesn't matter how we compare to each other. It doesn't matter how our outward morality lines up with, with other people. It says we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us make it in on our own. Listen, Christians aren't proclaiming to be the most moral people in the world, although you know the way we live after we become a Christian ought to reflect Jesus Christ. Actually, what we are saying is we are so messed up that we needed somebody to die for us to make us right with God. Actually, only a Bible-believing Christian who believes in grace can humbly say they're going to heaven because we are saying, it's not about me, it's about Jesus and what he did for me despite me. Amen. That's the gospel. And so Paul goes on to write here after saying that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, being justified, being declared righteous, freely, which means at no cost to us because he paid the price by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate, and here it is, at the present time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross so God could be just 
and justly justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God in his holiness had to uphold his law and pour out his wrath against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And if we reject Jesus Christ, that's what we will experience eternally. But God who is holy and righteous and just and perfect in all of his ways is also loving and kind and gracious and merciful. And so on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. And Jesus absorbed all of that wrath where God kept his law. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, absorbing the wrath of God. And and so God is just, but if we trust Jesus, if we're hidden in him and God justifies us, there's no more wrath for us. There's no judgment for us. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the gospel, that we are sinners deserving the righteous judgment of God, that we have rebelled against him, that we are sinners without excuse before God in his law. But God loved us. Jesus died for us and he rose from the dead. And if we'll admit that we're sinners and and, and turn from our sin and turn from our self-righteousness and not try to justify ourselves and we'll run to Christ and him crucified and cling to him and rely on him instead of receiving the wrath of God, we receive the righteousness of God and we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ and we receive the gift of eternal life. We're reconciled to God. We are permanently made right in his sight. We're justified only through Jesus where he gets all the credit and all the praise and all the honor and all the glory and that's why we love him and that's why we worship him and that is the gospel and that is Christianity and so you take away uh, justice, there's nothing for us to believe. So my question is, are you trusting in Jesus and him alone to make you right with God? Do you admit that you're a sinner? That you have nothing to offer God? And when you just come and say, my righteousness is filthy rags, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, clothe me in your righteousness. You bow your heads and close your eyes.